Section number nine of At a Winter's Fire. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kevin Barbuda. At a Winter's Fire by Bernard Cates. An Eddy on the Floor. Part one of Polly Hister's Narrative. Written for, but never inserted in, the Family Magazine. The eyes of Polly Hister, as he sat before the fire at night, took in the tawdry surroundings of his lodging-house with nothing of that apathy of resignation to his personal ananke, which of all moods is to fortune, the god of spontaneity, the most antipathetic. Indeed, he felt his wit, like Romeo's, to be of Chivero, and his conviction that it needed only the pull of circumstance to stretch it from an inch arrow to an ell broad, expressed but the very wooing quality of a constitutional optimism. Now this inherent optimism is at least a serviceable weapon when it takes the form of self-reliance. It is always at hand in an emergency, a guard of honor to the soul. The loneliness of individual life must learn self-respect from within, not without. And were all creeds to be mixed, that truism should be found their precipitate. Therefore, Polyhistor was content to draw grass-green rep curtains across the window panes, sloughed with wintry sleet to place his feet upon a rug flayed of color to its dusty sinews, to admit to his close fellowship, and find a familiar comfort in them, too. Three separate lithographs of affected babies, inviting any canine confidences but the bite one desired for them, and a dismal daguerreotype of his landlady's deceased husband, slowly perishing in peg-tops and a yellow fog of despondency, out of which only his boots and a very tall hat frowned insistent, the tabernacles of enduring respectability. He was content, because he knew these were only incidents in his career, the slums to be first traversed on a journey before the rounding breadths of open country were reached, and the station in life he purposed, stopping at eventually, was the terminus of prosperity, intellectual and material. With no present good fortune but the capacity for desiring it, with the right to affix a letter or so, like Grace after Skilly, to his name, with the consciousness that, having overcome theoretical pharmaceutics masterfully, he was now combating practical dispensing slavishly, with full confidence in his social position, he stood under the shadow of high connections, like the little-winged victory in a conqueror's hand, he chose to think. To help him to eventual distinction, he toasted his toes that sour winter evening, and reviewed in comfort an army of prospects. Also his thoughts reverted indulgently to the incidents and experiences of the previous night, he had had the pleasure of an invitation to one of those reunions or seances at the house, in a fashionable quarter of his distant connection, Lady Barbara Grill, whereat it was his hostess's humor to gather together those many birds of alien feather and incongruous habit that will flock from the hedgerows to the least little flattering crumb of attention. And scarce one of them but thinks the simple feast is spread for him alone, and with so cheap a bait may a title lure. Lady Barbara, to do her justice, trades upon her position only in so far as it shapes itself the straight road to her desires. She is a carpet adventurer, an explorer amongst the nerves of moral sensation, to whom the discovery of an untrodden mental track is a pure delight, and the more delightful, the more ephemeral. She flits from guest to guest, shooting out to each a little proboscis, as it were, and happy if its point touches a speck of honey. She gathers from all, and stores the sweet agglomerate, let us hope, to feed upon it in the winter of her life, when the hive of her busy brain shall be thatched with snow. 
that reference to so charming a personality should be in this place a digression is Polly Hister's unhappiness. She affects his narrative only inasmuch as he happened to meet her at her house, a gentleman who for a time exerted a considerable influence over his fortune. Here, Polly Hister's narrative must give place to contain editorial marginalia by Miss Lucy, who runs the family magazine. Polly Hister, indeed, she writes, the conceit of some people. He seems to take himself for a sort of admirable Crichton, and all because of a chance of meeting with a gentleman referred to, a very interesting person, who is, I understand, reforming our prisons, brought him the offer of an appointment quite beyond his deserts. I was very glad to hear of it, however, and I asked the creature to contribute a paper recording his first impressions of this notable man, instead of which he begins with an opinionated rigmarole about himself, and goes on from bad to worse by describing a long conversation he had about prison reform with that horrid and masculine Mrs. C., whom all the officers call Charlie, and who thinks that for men to grow humane is a sign of their decadence. Of course, I shall cut the whole of their talk together, it is a blessed privilege to be an editor, and jump to the part where Polly Hister describes the notable person's visit to him, which was due to his, the NP's, having the night before overheard some of the conversation between those two. Polly Hister's narrative continued. Now, as Polly Hister sat, he humored his recollection in the intervals of scribbling verses to the Bozia of a certain Miss L., with some of Charlie's characteristic last-night utterances. She had dated man's decadence from the moment when he began to poor fellow irreclaimable savagery on the score of heredity. She had repudiated the old humbug of sex superiority because she had seen it fall in its face to howl over a trodden worm, with the result that it discovered itself hollow behind, like the elf maiden. She had said, Once you taught us divinely, argumentum baculinum, said she, for you are the sons of God, you know. But you have since so insisted upon the rights of humanity that we have learned ourselves in the phrase, and that the earthy have the best right to precedence on the earth and thereupon Charlie had launched into abuse of what she called the latest masculine fad, prison reform, to wit, and a heated discussion between her and Polly Hister had ensued, in the midst of which she had happened to glance behind her to find that very notable person who was the subject of this narrative vouchsafing a silent attention to her diatribe. And then, but at this period, to his cogenations, Polly Hister's landlady entered with a card, which she presented his consideration, Major James Shrike, H.M., Prison, D. All astonishment, Polly Hister bade his visitor up. He entered briskly, fur-collared, hat in hand, and bowed as he stood on the threshold. He was a very short man, snub-nosed, rusty-whiskered, indubitably and unimpressively a cockney in appearance. He might have walked out of a crook-shank edging. Polly Hister was beginning. May I inquire? while the other took him up with a vehement frankness that he found engaging at once. This is a great intrusion. Will you pardon me? I heard some remarks of yours last night that deeply interested me. I obtained your name and address of our hostess, and took the liberty of, Oh, pray be seated. Say no more. My kinswoman's introduction is all sufficient. I am happy as having caught your attention in so motley a crowd. She doesn't, forgive the impertinence, take herself seriously enough. Lady Barbara? Then you found her out? Ah, you're not offended? Not in the least. Good. It was a motley assemblage, as you say. Yet I'm inclined to think I found my pearl in the oyster. I'm afraid I interrupted, eh? No, no, not at all. Only some idle scribbling. 
I've finished. You are a poet? Only a lunatic. I haven't taken my degree. Ah, it's a noble gift. The gift of song, precious through its rarity. Polyhister caught a note of emotion in his visitor's voice, and glanced at him curiously. Surely, he thought, that vulgar, ruddy little face is transfigured. But, said the stranger, coming to earth, I am lingering beside the mark. I must try to justify my solecism in manners by a straight reference to the object of my visit. That is, in the first instance, a matter of business. Business? I am a man with a purpose, seeking the hopefulest means to an end. Plainly, if I could procure you the post of resident doctor at D. Jail, would you be disposed to accept it? Polyhister looked his utter astonishment. I can affect no surprise at yours, said the visitor, attentively regarding Polyhister. It is perfectly natural. Let me forestall some unnecessary expression of it. My offer seems unaccountable to you, seeing how we never met until last night. But I don't move entirely in the dark. I have ventured in the interval to inform myself as to the details of your career. I was entirely one with much of your expression of opinion as to the treatment of criminals, in which you controverted the, the crude and unpleasant skepticism of the lady you talked with. Poor new Charlie. Combining the two, I come to the immediate conclusion that you are the man for my purpose. You have dumbfounded me. I don't know what to answer. You have views, I know, as to prison treatment. Will you sketch them? Will you talk on while I try to bring my scattered wits to a focus? Certainly, I will. Let me, in the first instance, recall to you a few words of your own. They ran somewhat in this fashion. Is not the man of practical genius the man who is most apt at solving the little problems of resourcefulness in life? Do you remember them? Perhaps I do, in a cruder form. They attracted me at once. It is upon such a postulate I base my practice. Their moral is this, to know the antidote to the moment the snake bites, that is, to have the intuition of divinity. We shall rise to it some day, no doubt, and climb the hither side of the new Olympus. Who knows? Over the crest the spirit of creation may be ours. Polyhister nodded, still at sea, and the other went on with a smile. I once knew a world-famous engineer with whom I used to breakfast occasionally. He had a patent egg-boiler on the table, with a little double-sided ladle underneath to hold the spirit. He complained that his egg was always undercooked. I said, why not reverse the ladle so as to bring the deeper cup uppermost? He was charmed with my perspicacity. The solution had never occurred to him. You remember, too, no doubt, the story of Coleridge and the horse-collar. We aim too much at great developments. If we cultivate resourcefulness, the rest will follow. Shall I state my system in Nuke? It is to encourage this spirit of resourcefulness. Surely the habitual criminal has it in a marked degree. Yes, but abnormally developed in a single direction. His one object is to outmaneuver in a game of desperate and immoral chances. The tactical spirit in him has none of the higher ambition. It has felt itself in the degree only that stops at defiance. That is perfectly true. It is half-self-conscious of an individuality that instinctively assumes the hopelessness of recognition by duller intellects. Leading to resentment through misguided vanity, it falls all oblique. What is the cure for this? I answer the teaching of a divine egotism. The subject must be led to a pure devotion to self. What he wishes to respect he must be taught to make beautiful and interesting. The policy of sacrifice to others has so long stunted his moral nature because it is an hypocritical policy. We are responsible to ourselves in the first instance, 
and to argue an eternal system of blind self-sacrifice is to undervalue the fine gift of individuality. In such he sees but an indefensible policy of force applied to the advantage of the community. He is told to be good, not that he may morally profit, but that others may not suffer inconvenience. Polyhistor was beginning to grasp, through his confusion, a certain clue of meaning in his visitor's rapid utterance. The stranger spoke fluently, but in the dry, positive voice that characterizes men of will. Pray go on, Polyhistor said. I am digesting in silence. We must endeavor to lead him to respect of self by showing him what his mind is capable of. I argue on no secretarian, no religious grounds even. Is it possible to make a man's self his most precious possession? Anyhow, I work to that end. A doctor purges before building up with a tonic. I eliminate cant and hypocrisy, and then introduce self-respect. It isn't enough to employ a man's hands only. Initiation in some labor that should prove wholesome and remunerative is a redeeming factor, but it isn't all. His mind must work also, and awaken to its capacities. If it rusts, the body reverts to inhuman instincts. May I ask how you... By intercourse, in my own person or through my officials, I wish to have only those about me who are willing to contribute to my designs, and with whom I can work in absolute harmony. All my officers are chosen to that end. No doubt a dash of constitutional sentimentalism gives color to my theories. I get it from a human tract in me that circumstances have obliged me to put a hoarding round. I begin to gather daylight. Quite so. My patients are invited to exchange views with their guardians in spirit of perfect friendliness, to solve little problems of practical moment, to acquire the pride of self-reliance. We have competitions, such as certain newspapers, open to the readers in a simple form. I draw up the questions myself. The answers give me insight into the mental conditions of the competitors. Upon insight, I proceed. I am fortunate in private means, and I am in a position to offer modest prizes to the winners. Whenever such one is discharged, he finds awaiting him the tools most handy to his vocation. I bid him go forth in no pharisaical spirit, and invite him to communicate with me. I wish the shadow of the jail to extend no further than the road whereon it lies. Henceforth, we are acquaintances with a common interest at heart. Isn't it monstrous that a state-fixed degree of misconduct should earn a man social ostracism? Parents are generally inclined to rule extra tenderness towards a child whose peccadilloes have brought him an extra whipping. For myself, I have no faith in supervision. Give a culprit his term and have done with it. I find the majority who come back to me are ticket of leave men. Have I said enough? I offer you the reversion of the post. The present holder of it leaves in a month's time. Please to determine here and at once. Very good. I have decided. You will accept? Yes. So far, Polyhistor wrote in the bonny days of early manhood, an attempt made in a spasm of enthusiasm inspired in him and humored by his most engaging mentor to record his first impressions of a notable personality not many days after its introduction to him. He has never taken up the tale again until now, when an insistent sense, as of a task left unfinished, compels him to the effort. Over his sweet mentor the grass lies thick, and flowers of aged stalk abloom perennially. And oh, the difference to me! To me, for it is time to drop the poor conceit, the pseudonym that once served its little purpose to awaken tender derision. I take up the old and stained manuscript, with its marginalia, that are like the dim call from a faraway voice, and I know that, so I am driven to record the sequel to that gay introduction. It must be in a spirit of somberness, most deadly by contrast. I look at the faded opening words. The fire of the first line of the narrative is long out. 
the grate is cold some forty years. Forty years? And I think I have been a little chill during all that time. But, though the room rustle with phantoms and menace stalk in the retrospect, I shall acquit my conscience of its burden, refusing to be bullied by the counsel of a destiny that subpoenaed me entirely against my will. End of section 9. This recording is in the public domain.